You are listening to the Missions History Podcast, brought to you by the International Mission Board, where we remember the past to inspire the future. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Welcome to Missions History Podcast. I'm David Brady, and my co-host is... I'm Scott Peterson. Uh, We're so glad that you've joined us for this episode today. We'll be talking with Kay about uh, missionary Orville Reed and the book that she and her husband, Don, collaborated on, The Many Sombreros of Orville Reed. Um, So, Kay, welcome to Missions History Podcast. I'm honored to be on this podcast. Uh, well, thank you so much. And um, first, we'd like to get to know you a little bit and tell us about your background, where you're from, and how you became a believer. Well, I was born in Abilene, Texas in 1938. Uh, we'll be 81 years uh, later this month. And I was um, came to know the Lord because of my parents, both my mom and dad. My dad was a pastor, and uh, I grew up knowing about Jesus and then later accepted him, of course, as my Savior. How did you begin to sense that God was calling you to be a missionary? I think through missionaries that visited our church in those years, they stayed in the pastor's home, and so I got to know them. They would dress me up in their little... uh, costumes in their typical dress, and uh, I was just raised with them, and also through um, GAs and uh, summer camps. Uh, I just grew up with missionaries that way. Kay, does uh, any one particular missionary stand out that you remember from your childhood? Uh, I remember uh, Maybelle Taylor. She was from that area in Texas, and uh, she was a missionary for many years in Brazil. Yes, I remember her very well. So, Kay, you, so you had this missionary interest, but you went with a, a, a unique ministry platform. So what, what also were you before you became a missionary? Well, uh, I was uh, already dealing with the board, even though uh, in my teenage years, I uh, was having some real difficulty. My My dad died when I was 12, nearly 13, and um, even though I had felt a real inclination toward missions, at that time, I decided that that would not be the way I would go because people would say, oh, she's just following her dad's footsteps, and that was a real deterrent for me until I was uh, finishing uh, college. I'd already finished my nursing preparation, and uh, I finally decided that didn't matter. The Lord was definitely calling me, and I would go. I later uh, went on to seminary and then got a couple of years of experience before I was appointed in 1963. Where did you go to seminary? When or where? Where? Uh, Fort Worth, Southwestern. Okay. Yes. My mom and dad had been in the seminary years before I was even born, yeah. So um, you went to seminary, then you're you're called as a missionary. So tell us about um, where you went as a missionary. I was appointed to Mexico uh, as a missionary nurse to serve in the hospital there in Guadalajara. I had to go to language school a year in Costa Rica and supposedly learned Spanish. And uh, then I had to wait nearly a year to get into Mexico because of the legal papers 
they were using to get uh, a couple of nurses into Mexico. Now, were you going to be serving at a foreign mission board hospital? Yes. Uh-huh. The Hospital Mexico Americano, the Mexican American Hospital, is located in Guadalajara. Do you know the history? Who who started that hospital? Well, Dr. Lamar Cole, who was a missionary with the board, uh, uh, actually was the uh, first uh, missionary that uh, started it. Dr. Cole uh, was uh, forced to repeat his med school in, in Guadalajara in order to be licensed and in order, order to be able to open the hospital and operate it. You know, Kay, one of the things that uh, your story and my story uh, has a special connection, and that is that uh, in 1976, um, my parents went uh, to language school in Guadalajara, and we mm-hmm. li- and we lived of all places in, in your, my apartment. In your apartment. And what an amazing story. And uh, I loved it. You had that beautiful fence, that big wall and that fenced in yard for a for an eight year old boy. It was a wonderful place to live. Well, it, it was wonderful for me because I'd taken a year's leave of absence. And because of you all renting my apartment, I was able to do my family nurse practitioner course in uh, in Fort Worth, Arlington there in Texas. Yes. So well, you, I, your family blessed me. Well, that's a that's a wonderful connection, and and um, I wanted to ask you. So, um, you married um, a little later. So, tell us about your husband Don and how, how y'all met, because that'll get us to the story of Orville. Don came to Guadalajara in 1978 as um, as a CSI missionary to work uh, with the student work. They were opening a student center there, and he came to work with David Wyman, one of our missionaries there, uh, in, in, the, in a brand-new building there for the, the uh, student work there, right across the street from one of the universities in Guadalajara. And that's interesting. So how, uh, of all the missionaries that, um, that you and Don could have, that you wanted to tell the story, why did you want to tell the story of Orville Reed? Because he was so extraordinarily different. He, the title of the book we chose, The Many Sombreros of Orville Reed, because he had so many multiple ministries while he was in Mexico. He was uh, literally a, a man before his time. Well, speaking of that time, when did Orville Reed first go to Mexico? Well, interestingly enough, he and his wife, his first wife, Jewel Starr, went to Mexico the year I was born in 1938. How about that? Wow. And and, and tell us a little bit. You mentioned um, his first wife, Jewel Starr. Where, where was Orville from and what was sort of his upbringing? Well, Orville was from uh, Stigler, uh, Oklahoma. His uh, great-grandfather was part Cherokee, and interestingly enough, also, that uh, the wife he later married, Star, Jewel Star, was Cherokee. And he was raised in a home of uh, atheist parents who, as he was a young uh, young boy, 
came to know the Lord, but he had been taught there was no God. So from the beginning, uh, his parents were very involved in a church before he ever came to know the Lord. And, you know, it's kind of interesting in reading the book, which, by the way, we recommend um, The Many Sombreros of Orville Reed uh, by Don Medeiros. And uh, you, they're, I'm sure they're used copies. Look it up online. It's a really, it's a good read and hope that uh, you'll take time to to, to find a copy of that. Uh, but in that story, one of the things, not only was Orville uh, raised, his parents were atheists in his early years, which that's pretty strange, you would think, for that time frame, but also they were pretty poor. Very. He, through, through the years, through his childhood and uh, teenage years, he had a real struggle because of the poverty of the family, yes. And, and one of the things, you know, I, I, talking about after he became a believer, um, the many stories in there that I thought were amazing. But tell us a little bit about his father's um, funeral. His father died and um, there was this, this funeral and this sort of amazing experience that happened at the funeral. Because his father had been an atheist, many of his father's friends were also atheists, and his father also had a, a drinking problem, so many of the friends were alcoholics. But at the funeral of his father, the, as uh, Orville preached the gospel and others there shared the Lord, many of those former atheistic friends came to know the Lord because of that funeral. I, an amazing thing. I think, too, they were saying they were digging the grave, and there was like yes. stone, and they because they had to wait for the digging of the grave, Orville took the opportunity to preach the gospel. And preach it some more. Amazing. Just a wonderful story. So um, go ahead, Scott. And I, you know, I, David talked, uh, mentioned that he came to faith uh, after, uh, later, after his parents actually came to faith. Yes. And he interacted, mm-hmm. he pushed back his parents when they were concerned about his his situation and how did he yes. respond to them initially? Definitely, and they 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 felt so badly because their influence was the one that was the thing that was keeping him from Christ. So he's born somewhere like what about 1908, I think, in that time Correct. frame, and, uh-huh. and and so he born into this home. He be, he becomes a believer. I think he goes to um, Oklahoma Baptist University. Yes, he does. But even in his grade school and high school years, because of the the poverty, uh, he had to, and uh, they were in a small town, he had to go to another town, had to live uh, at one time, lived with one of the teachers because they saw in him some real possibility. But that time he had come to know the Lord, though. And so he worked uh, and when he was in Oklahoma Baptist University, he worked his way through through the whole um, years that he was there by doing very menial, menial jobs, uh, you know, uh, cleaning yards, uh, shoveling snow, whatever it was, he would do it uh, in order to um, get his education. And, you know, I was thinking about this. Um, there was that uh, boxer that you tell about yes. in the book that came 
um, and basically uh, gave, you know, he was like in his 80s, I think, at that point, and he gave uh, sort of a physical demonstration, but then he told the students that the reason that he was able to do that in his 80s was because of clean living and not drinking and not smoking and that sort of thing. And that so inspired Orville as a college student that that is exactly what he did for many years later in his demonstrations, anti-alcohol, his uh, physical feats that he did in Mexico uh, for many years because of that boxer. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, And so he goes from OBU, he goes to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, And there he begins to have this sense clearly that God is calling him to Mexico. He has this uh, opportunity, I think you say in the book, uh, an invitation uh, by President Scarborough comes and says, why don't you go to New York City? But he is is convinced that God has called him to go to Mexico. Yes, that's correct. Uh Even though the president of the seminary uh, gives him this other opportunity. He knows that God's calling him to Mexico. So uh, what was, you know, uh, uh, when they went, I guess in the late 1930s to Mexico, what would Mexico have been like for them when they went well, there? Yes, Mexico had been uh, a mission field for several years before that. Our first uh, Southern Baptist missionary was appointed in um, 1880, John O. Westrup, and he was on the field six months, excuse me, one month before he was assassinated, our very first missionary. Wow, wow. And uh, 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 William Powell uh, went to investigate that a couple of years later and then stayed on the field for several years. And But... um, we had missionaries from from that time in in 1882, uh, and but we had a a, a real situation in um, 1910 to 1917 when we had the Mexican Revolution. At that time, uh, even though we had a, a printing press in Guadalajara and a seminary. Uh, they had to go to the states. Therefore, the missionaries went to the states. The uh, publishing house went to El Paso and remained there. And the seminary went first to San Antonio and later went to El Paso before they, it returned to Mexico. So that was a real uh, downer <laughs> in more ways than one. And most of the missionaries left except for the um, George... George Lacey? Lacey. George Lacey, thank you. George Lacey. Uh, And he and his wife, Minnie, remained on the field all of those years, and they were the only ones there when Arville and Jewel arrived uh, in 1938. And they they went first to Mexico City, is that right? That's right. They were in Mexico City two years. studying Spanish at that time at the National University, but became very active in the First Baptist Church, La Primera Iglesia Bautista, there in Mexico City. And so Orville was was really uh, faithful in communicating back with uh, missionary supporters in the, U- the U.S. through 
something in the book called The Mexican Visitor. And the Mexican Visitor was his newsletter back to the States. And that was also a little unusual in those years for there to be that much communication between the field and the, and the states, yes. You, you know, you mentioned that they were in Mexico City for two years, involved in First Baptist Church there and in language school. But I, I read in the book about uh, a ministry that he got involved in and, and connected with, and that was the leper colony there near yes. in Mexico City. Can you tell us a little bit about that? He started, uh, some from First Baptist were visiting the leper colony, and so he started to, uh, he went with them to visit there, and he was so touched by the the infirmity that uh, the leprosy had affected, had on, on the people there, uh, missing a limb or many of them, uh, facial uh, deformities, uh, missing the nose, that type of thing. And it and it really moved Darvel to see the um, the physical and spiritual need there. One of the fellows came to know the Lord through through Arvel in the ministry there, and he well, desperately wanted to be baptized. And of course, Arvel told him that he was saved as saved as he could be, and that baptism was not essential at all. And of course, they couldn't baptize uh, that that fellow, right? Yeah, and and, and Kay, the reason. Let's just kind of help our listeners understand. It, it it's because of of the legal things that outside of a, a an official church building, they could not baptize. Is that is that what I understood? That's correct. They could form no official office of a minister because of the. Uh, laws in Mexico. That's correct. Which indirectly was a real blessing because we had to uh, educate and train our pastors, and uh, the missionary himself could not be a pastor and officiate in these things, which indirectly was a blessing. And while he was in Mexico City, he got involved in another ministry that you talk about in the book a little bit, and that's, we can't take it for granted these days that missionaries are involved in student work in universities, but that was not always uh-huh. the case, and he got right, he, jumped right in, didn't he? He, he jumped right in and, and uh, probably started the, the first student ministry in Mexico, uh, definitely there at the university where he was studying and sort of emphasized the philosophical aspect because that was a really great drawing card for students in those years, particularly. You know, uh, Kay, as we're thinking about, you know, God calling him, he's getting established, but it wasn't long into his ministry till a very serious uh, tragedy occurred. Tell tell us what took place with Jewel. Yes. As I mentioned, Joe was a full-blood uh, Cherokee, and uh, I had heard about Joe when I was in seminary. Sybil uh, uh, Arms, my pastor's wife, was our Sunday school teacher, and she used to tell us seminary girls about Jewel Starr. She was in Marion Baylor with her, and she said she had never known a person that stayed on her knees before the Lord as much as Jewel Starr did. Now, this was later, Arvel's wife. They had a son, Rodney, 
who was two years old when this incident happened. Jewel became violently sick, tremendous pain, and the uh, Arville contacted the consulate and they got her to a hospital. And uh, unfortunately, uh, she did not survive. She had an ectopic pregnancy and uh, she she died, but she died knowing that she was going to be with the Lord. It was a a, a tragic, joyous experience, as it should be for every Christian. But before she passed away, she and Arvel had the talk, the talk about what they would do with little two-year-old Rodney. And he, uh, they decided that he should be taken back to Oklahoma City to her sisters for at least for the immediate future for her sister to raise little Rodney. So after Jewel died, Arville said it was the hardest thing he ever went through because he lost both of them, uh, her death, and then he had to take Rodney back to the States. And tragic. And, tragic, yes. So there he is, and and as, as so poignantly in put in the book that one newsletter, one Mexican visitor, he signs it, um, Orville and Jewel, and, and then the name of the son, and then the next newsletter, it's him alone. Exactly. And it's just so, so difficult. So uh, tell us about, he moved from Mexico City to your stomping grounds of Guadalajara. Yes. So yes. tell us, tell us about his uh, some of his early ministry there. Well, when he got to Guadalajara, he, uh, of course, a single fellow. Uh, he was looking for some place to to live. He had been assigned seven states in the western part of Mexico, and uh, so his home base was going to be working out of Guadalajara. So he lived with a pastor, had a one room there in a pastor's home. This pastor uh, saw the need of students coming into the city to study. And years before, they had schools before the revolution. Uh, that was no longer legal. So it was a real problem for students from outlying areas to get an education. So this pastor uh, took in a couple of young ladies, and uh, they were all living in the same home. And Arvel got the idea, or the Lord used this uh, for Arvel, that this is the way that he could minister would be to have a place where students could come live. So he got a house. He uh, had three uh, young uh, Mexican young men who were very uh, uh, interested in getting an education but were having to work so they couldn't. And so he was able, uh, one young man that was working in a shoe shop, Jose Gonzalez, uh, he was able to, uh, through his own salary, and Marvel used his salary many times to help students, but he was able to pay him what Jose was making in the shoe shop in order for him to go uh, to, to grade school, finished high school, had the outstanding uh, career in in medicine many years later. Incidentally, Jose Gonzalez was my own physician there wow. at the hospital. How about that? Wow. 
That's but amazing. That gave him the idea of having students' homes, and that's what uh, he established. And uh, we still have them in Mexico. Yes, I, I think what a what a innovative ministry, and just kind of to give us a little bit of the context. Um, it seems like culturally it would have been very hard to be an evangelical, a Protestant, Christian, just because of a lot of the uh, pressure as far as drinking and sort of the 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 uh, some of the vices that perhaps this uh, Christian student home could help these young people to avoid. Exactly. And it's also what led him into the the ministry of his demonstration. So just like uh, the boxer was back in Oklahoma, he started having demonstrations of his own strength because he could do these physical feats, and then he could also say, I'm able to do this because I have never taken a drink, I've never smoked a cigarette, and there's so much alcoholism um, that this was a, a, a real uh, entree into people's minds and hearts. What, what uh, he would do, yeah, you probably have seen him do some of this. I, I have. I cannot believe it, but it's amazing for me that he, it was 1976. It must have been right before he retired, maybe like the uh-huh. last thing he did in Mexico before he, he came back to the U.S. But I got to see Orville Reed once. But Scott here, I think, wants to know yeah. what were some of the feats exactly. that Orville did. I mean, I've read about them. I can't, I've never had the opportunity to see them. But why don't you describe okay. some of those for our listeners? I'll be glad to tell you. Um, he would uh, put a towel around his neck, uh, wrap a uh, rope around that towel, and he would um, have about um, six or eight guys on each side of him, you know, uh, and then he would tell them to pull with all of their strength against each other while he's saying uh, Las Mañanitas, the Mexican happy birthday song. <laughs> he, he would then... Uh, stick his arms straight out and have uh, three or four guys on each arm uh, try to lower his arms. They were just hanging on like they would hang on a, a limb of a tree. They could not do it. He uh, would have, uh, he would lie down on the ground and put a rather large size rock on his chest and he had a sledgehammer he always had, even in his retirement, he still had that sledgehammer. And he would give a sledgehammer to the strongest fellow he could find, and the fellow would break the rock on his chest. I guess his his principal feat, I guess, was to, uh, again, lie down on the ground, have uh, a couple of uh, planks put across his chest, and have... Uh, an automobile drive over him. What? That's right. <laughs> oh, how Get heavy of a car. <laughs> it, it is It is the truth. I saw that with my own eyes. So let's just make sure that our listeners are tracking with us, Kay. So you're saying that as a missionary, to be able to attract a crowd and to be able to, one, to give this, uh, this sort of clean living message that would also <laughs> open the door for the gospel— he was willing to do all of these things, even have a car drive over him in order to be able to have an open door to share with the, with the people there. He was another Paul. I have become all things to all men in that, in that 
they some will be saved. Well yes. said. Well said, Kay. That's exactly uh, what I was thinking wow. as well. And, you know, so that that was something that would draw a lot of people to him. I, I, I don't know if we've ever had another missionary that uh, that did these strong men feats, but a feat. But what a what a incredible um, heritage that we have to have an Orville Reed as part of our missionary force. But but exactly. tell it tell us something, Kay. I want to hear here he is. He's single for a period of time. But God brings someone else into his life. So tell us a little bit about the story of how he meets Alma and their relationship. Alma was a student at Southwestern Seminary. And uh, after his wife died, he came back to the States um, to uh, check on his little son. And um, also his father was ill at the time. And at the time, he came through Fort Worth, and uh, he was asked to speak at the chapel. And uh, he did, but Alma heard all about him, but she didn't go. She was busy typing for for uh, her professor that she was working for. But she heard all about this uh, good-looking, strong, uh, single, <laughs> single missionary in Mexico that his wife had died and he had to bring his little boy back to the States. So she, she remembered about that, but it was a couple of years later that she, uh, was working for the Sunday school board in Nashville and there was a Southern Baptist convention in San Antonio and she was there in the booth working and all of a sudden, this uh, tall, handsome, single missionary to Mexico came up and started talking to her. And that was the beginning of several months of correspondence. And it was very obvious that there was an attraction uh, for both of them, but Arvo was much more expressive in it. Uh, and as... Uh, as would happen, she was interested in missions, had been working with the board, and uh, all the time she was corresponding with with Arvel, she went to Ridgecrest for the appointment service. But she was to they were going to work with the personnel before the appointment service, of course, and um, they did it uh, very rapidly in those years. I understand. And she was one uh, of three that were deferred by the by the personnel. She was not appointed at that time, and she was um, very sorry that that it did not work out for her to go to Brazil, as uh, she had thought she would. And so um, the correspondence continued, and uh, as he. Uh, proposed to her. Uh, she uh, realized that the Lord was in this, and she was very attracted to him. And so uh, she did accept it. They corresponded with the board, and she went to Mexico and uh, lived with the Webbs, other missionaries there in Mexico City, and they were married. Uh, the consul was at their wedding, and the board uh, appointed her, and so uh, it, it all happened uh, at, at the same time. Now, um, 
he was, of course, living in Guadalajara, and so she left Mexico City without much of a honeymoon because, of course, he had to get back to the kids at the at the student home that he uh, was where he was living. So, can you imagine this uh, bride not understanding Spanish to come into this? home with all of these fellas, and they had a party ready for her to greet her. And of course, with all the music, and you can understand with all the uh, Mexican singing uh, and the greetings uh, and her not understanding any, any word, there was a young man who spoke English, and Jorge Gaspar uh, went over to her and immediately started translating so she was so glad she could understand what they were saying to her well you there's a story in the book too about not long after they were married and before she could speak spanish very well about orville going to another town to do some <laughs> visiting uh, tell uh-huh. us about that story i think our listeners would just love to hear about the story of her ex- expressing all of her known spanish and spending all day here in this town <laughs> Well, he took he went and and uh, took our took took Alma and they went to uh, an outline area and he left her there in the market to go make some visits to the pastor and to some other men and and so when he got through with his visits he got in his car and he drove back to Guadalajara and and he came how into the student home and the student said. Hermano, where is, where is, where's your wife? Where's Alma? And he thought, <laughs> oh my goodness, I left her at the market in that little village. So he jumped in the car and ran back and got her. And she was none the wiser, right? She didn't know that none he had forgotten wiser. her. <laughs> she just thought he had gotten talking and was being <laughs> Later, long. Obviously yeah. they told her, but yes, that's a, that's a good horrible story. Yeah. yeah. Is it, he, there are so many amazing stories about him. Let, let's just a couple of other things at, at some point, um, um, Orville and Jewel's son comes to live with them again, doesn't he? Yes, yes. He stayed with his aunt there in Oklahoma for about four years and then came back to to, to Guadalajara and lived with them uh, there, yes. And, and uh, of course, he had forgotten a lot of his Spanish, but it didn't take him long with, it, with his friends there to, to pick it up again, and he was such a, a blessing. They also had a daughter. Okay. They had a, a, a baby girl born to them there in Guadalajara, Charlotte Ann, and she was called uh, Anita. And I have a good friend in Guadalajara that remembers her vividly, played with her. And she tells me of a time, I don't think this is in the book, she tells me of a time that uh, Alma went into her bedroom and saw that that little Anita, by that time she was eight or nine years old, had gotten down the brown shoe polish and was polishing her legs and her arms because she wanted to look like her friends. Oh, oh wow. That? Isn't that yeah. something? But she was that, uh, the, the, the reeds themselves were that identified with the nationals that uh, they were just all one family. Of course, one family in the Lord. Isn't that something? And, you know, 
there's the story is just so um, sad again. So tell us what happened to to Charlotte and to uh, the son. Well, Arvo had much grief, but you would never know it. Unfortunately, Charlotte uh, developed a brain tumor. She, uh, when they were not able to alleviate or, or help her there in the hospital in Guadalajara, uh, they sent her to Houston, and um, she uh, was undergoing one of the tests uh, for the diagnostic purpose of the brain tumor, and uh, she died at 15 years of age. And so they um, had to return to Guadalajara, uh, brought the body back, though, because she was that so much a, a part of it that she had to be buried. They wanted her to be buried there in Guadalajara in one of the cemeteries there. And um, that did happen. Then many years later, after I was in Guadalajara, uh, we the Breeds received a call from their daughter-in-law that Rodney, who uh, by that time was married, a school teacher, a lay preacher, uh, serving the Lord beautifully in Oregon, uh, worked a lot with the, the young people that he coached. And uh, one of the young men, 15 years old, and he were out on a boat and they uh, did not return to shore, and and both both died, drowned there. Um, and uh, they received that word. Um, I uh, took my pastor's mother over to the home, and uh, I can remember so well the the tears. But through the tears, Rodney's with his little sister. They're both with the Lord. They went to Oklahoma to his funeral, and uh, they brought the body back from Oregon and uh, buried him there in Oklahoma. And it was our time for our annual mission meeting. And I thought, well, we'll miss the Reeds. Uh, I know they're coming back, but they, of course, surely wouldn't come to mission meeting. And who should arrive at mission meeting but Arbel and Alma rejoicing and how the Lord helped them through this other grief. I, I tell you, you know, we've heard this theme repeated over and over again, and that is that um, that tragedy and suffering has struck uh, almost all of our missionaries at some point. And, and the issue is not, will it strike, but what will you do when it strikes? Will you turn to the Lord? And, and those that do We've just seen amazing endurance and faithfulness, and and that was evidenced in in Orville and Alma's life as well. It definitely was. It it certainly was. One of the areas I have not touched on that's so important was the print shop that Orville uh, created uh, there at the boys' student home uh, for several reasons. One thing, these boys were studying, but they also um, needed to have some type of employment uh, so they could also study. And so he uh, was able to obtain an old printing press, and so that enabled them to learn. Of course, he had never he had never been a printer, but he learned how. And he taught them how to use this printing press, and it gave them employment, 
But another thing, because it was difficult to get uh, any evangelical uh, tracts or uh, books or anything printed or even um, uh, just uh, the, the basic things that we just take for granted here, it enabled our churches and our pastors and leaders uh, to be able to print the material they had. And then since Orville was such a, a poet and an author, he wrote uh, five books uh, in Spanish. Uh, he has a, several books of poems. Uh, he was able to print his own uh, material there on this printing press. So that was another area the mini sombreros, that was just another thing that he did. Yeah. And you tell one, one one thing that uh impressed me is that with all of our planning and goals and um, plans of action, but we were trying to win Mexico, we were trying to share the gospel, and we had all of this elaborate uh means and ways to do it, and Arbor Reed, going day by day, doing his multiple jobs, did a lot more mission work than any of us with our plans. Wow. The Lord used him uniquely in his varied ministries. And you really, you bring out the impact of those translation work, the printing work with the tracts and the gospel portions and how God used those to call many people to him through the, the written word. They used those tracks also when he would do these demonstrations. He'd take the boys with him, of course. And so after he's attracted all of this attention and he gives his message, these young boys are out in the crowd passing out these tracks and witnessing. He also used uh, something very unique uh, when we had a, a funeral, a burial, he would always go with a track about what it means to live after death, and he would always use those with with the uh, non-believers. Yes, you know, and as you've said, there there's just so many ways that he ministered. for For those of the listeners of the podcast, that um, there might be a name that might ring a bell for some in in the missions world, and that's the name of of James Crane, James and his wife Edith Crane. And I didn't realize yes. till I read your book that James Crane heard Orville speak at chapel at Southwestern, and that was a real important part in his call to missions. Yes. James Crane uh, was raised in South Texas, was fluent in Spanish, but uh, when he went to Southwestern to prepare, he thought he would just be a, a pastor or a preacher there in Texas. and. With Arvel's call for missionaries, for, for the need in Mexico, James Crane responded to that call and the answer and went to Mexico and was there many years, he and Edith, not only as a missionary, but also uh, one of the field representatives with the board was, in essence, one of my bosses, uh, even though we were lived in the same city, and uh, they fed me many times, but uh, a, a man that had tremendous influence, not only in, in Mexico, but also in Central America and the Caribbean. 
Yes, he he did, and he wrote a lot, um, a lot of materials in Spanish, and those were widely used. Yes, I still use one here in the states now uh, for the new believer. Yes, yeah. So it's right. it's a, a wonderful impact. Yeah, wonderful impact that um, Orville had, and in just inspiring. Uh, another um, a missionary to come along. You know, one of the things that you that you and Don do in the book so beautifully is just uh, tell so many of the funny stories about Orville. And so I would just encourage our listeners to to try to get a copy because there are so many things we couldn't possibly get into this podcast. Right. But I love the stories in there about Orville and and some of his Spanish mistakes. Those were hysterical stories. Um, I just want to thank you so much, Kay, for for being our guest. And, you know, it's really, it's as um, amazing as Orville was, the reality is, is what really drove him was that there were so many people there in Mexico mm-hmm. and, of course, around the world that though they uh, may consider, you know, themselves saying, I, I'm a Christian, but they they don't know Christ in a personal way. And um, right. I remember um, when we lived in your apartment, um, one of the cathedrals there in Guadalajara, seeing um, some of these women on the stone, the cobblestones, just crawling mm-hmm. across for you know a quarter mile or more on their bare knees and blood because they were yes. trying to uh, make atonement for their sin. And and it might, you know, even as a, a a child, my heart went out and wanting to say atonement has been made. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christ yeah. has satisfied uh, uh, for all of our sins. He has made full payment and we, we can't contribute to that. And um, I know that Orville's heart and your heart uh, has been drawn to to seeing people know the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving power. And And I just want to thank you for your missionary service and for taking time uh, to share with Scott and me and our listeners about Orville Reed. It has been a high privilege, Scott and David, to be able to do this. And I thank you, uh, David, for recognizing this in the many sombreros of Orville Reed and allowing me to share this today. I thank you. Kay, thank you so much for being our guest. Um, We have really enjoyed talking with you today. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And Kay, we pray God's blessings on you and your upcoming birthday. And as you continue to serve the Lord there in Ruidoso, New Mexico, Thank you so much for being our guest on this episode of Missions History Podcast, where we remember the past to inspire the future. I'm David Brady. And I'm Scott Peterson. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Missions History Podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And check out more great content like this at imb.org.